0: Okay, well this morning I'd like you to join me in Luke chapter number 1, verse number 46. Luke one 46. <coughs> I'd like to read this uh, passage for you, starting in verse 46 and ending with verse 55. And Mary said, my soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has regard for the humble state of his bondslave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in their thoughts of the heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his descendants forever. Heavenly Father, as we... Have this passage open before us today, and we'll spend some time looking at it. I pray that you might uh, guide our thoughts this morning, our understanding of uh, who you are, and what we should do in response. Help us in our study, we pray, but challenge our hearts, Lord. Prepare us for what you would have us to do and be, that uh, we will be ready both in heart and in will, to do what you call us to do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Are we uh, reactionary people? Something happens and we respond. Some people more more extravagantly than others, or excitedly than others, but I think probably it's true. I'm not... uh, I'm not really that athletic at all, matter of fact, about this much of me is, because um, I watch sports, and so that much I could do. But uh, I do enjoy canoeing. Canoeing is a lot of fun, and I, I like to do that. But I'm always a little nervous when I'm in the canoe and somebody else is stepping into it, uh, because I like balance. I, I like things to be smooth and, and such, and. And if they step wrong into the, in a wrong manner into the canoe, you know what happens. It goes one way, and what's our reaction? We do our best to go the other way. And the only problem when you do that is usually they go that way too. And then we have problems. But I I think of that little uh, procedure, which I think we do almost uh, instinctively, We go the opposite way when something's going that direction. I could cite a couple of examples that I've watched in church uh, activity over the last, wow, sounds frightful to say 30 or 40 years. But uh, in the 70s and in the 80s, there was a great emphasis um, placed on the Holy Spirit in the charismatic realm. They talked a great deal about the Holy uh, Spirit, and then as they did that, I noticed it was interesting how the conservative churches went the other extremes. Trying to keep a balance, they decided we're not going to talk about the Holy Spirit at all. And that was their, their, their default uh, response or reaction to it. Uh, over the years, I think we've Tended to be very careful when we deal with the Holy Spirit. We we kind of approach it carefully uh, because we don't want to uh, upset that balance. In a reaction to the uh, Roman Catholic teaching on Mary, there has been among the Protestants a reluctance to talk about her, to bring her up. To our our contribution was to go the other extreme, and just. Not deal with that. And to some degree, I think I might have contributed a little bit to that uh, kind of a response. For in 25 years of sermons, I've never had a series on Mary. Never. Matter of fact, I don't even remember preaching a sermon on Mary in all those years. And so I thought I'd make up for that. The entire month is all sermons on Mary from this passage. That's morning and evening and Christmas Eve. So you're going to get plenty of it, all right? And if it's uh, going on in Sunday school too, you're you're going to get a lot of Mary. Maybe we're we're balance the canoe a little bit in the process. But uh, this uh, chapter and this passage in Luke chapter number one is a fascinating section that we're going to spend time in uh, because it, at least what we're do here this morning, also reflects a, a third concept. I think the the Church has gone one side or the other, uh, trying to balance things. And that might be in the way people worship. In the way they sing. Songs can't be controversial, can they? Style of songs? It's been going on for a long time. But it is something that, uh, we tend to do. There are some who prefer, when they sing, to raise their arms up in the air. And to close their eyes and to look up as they sing. Uh, There are those who do that. I remember in one church, the first time somebody did that in our church, we didn't know what to do. What do you do? There was a response. It was kind of a funny thing. We didn't know how we're supposed to respond. So I guess the proper thing would have been to do the opposite. To sit down, put our hands underneath us, just open our eyes as wide as we could and stare down. And that would have been the other extreme. You say, boy, that guy looks strange too. Kind of silly, isn't it? When we try to figure out, how do you respond to things like this? Well, see, I'm of those uh, creatures, maybe you might call me a wooden conservative. I'm just kind of chiseled the way I am. And I kind of like it. And being being of that nature, uh, uh, at times we tend to look at the performance. In worship, rather than at the one who we're worshiping, and that's a, a tendency I think that is easy to come to. Uh, we have an interesting thing before us here in Luke chapter number one. It's it's easy to set the focus on Mary because that's exactly what this passage has led to for so many years. It's really not about her, to tell the truth. It's about the one she is worshipping. And that's a focus I'd like to maintain. But to do that, we've got to walk through our initial step here in verse number 46. We're going to focus on the character of God, but we're going to see it in the manner by which Mary praises Him. All right? Now, there's a a simple word in English grammar called the superlative. Most of you know what that is, right? The superlative. It's in the category of adjectives and adverbs. Instead of uh, something that's big or bigger, the superlative is what? Biggest. You, You always go to the top of the rung, whatever you're trying to use for a description, it's, it's the greatest, it's the highest, it's, it's got the most quality, it's got the most degree, whatever you want to, you picture that as, that's the work of an adjective or an adverb to describe something to its fullest co- uh, potential, its, its fullest measure. Now, I thought it was interesting when I typed that into the computer, uh, there was a website that said that there's a superlative noun, I said, well, that'd be interesting, because I'd never heard of a noun being a superlative before. So I said, well, I've got to find out what a superlative noun is. So I I actually clicked on it, and it found out that the word superlative is a noun. That was it. I said, oh, okay. Um, So there wasn't anything else to it, but just the fact that the word superlative is a noun. So I thought I'd make up something, too, since they can. Uh, How about a verb? We're going to talk about a superlative verb today. All right? Not an adverb to make it superlative, but the superlative verb. You say, well, that could be interesting. Uh, This is how it looks. First of all, talking about a superlative adjective, uh, how it affects a noun, there's an interesting uh, situation that uh, Paul addresses in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians 9, he's teaching the Corinthians about giving. Great, big, long section. Beautiful section, but we can't go through all that today. But he does say something in verse number 7 that we've seen before. And the phrase is, "...each one must do just as he purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver." Right? The word cheerful there is kind of interesting. It is the adjective of the giver. A cheerful giver. But actually when you break down that adjective, you find it's it's a lot more than just cheerful. It is a word that we get our word hilarious from. It's really interesting when you try to picture it. A hilarious giver. What must that look like? Somebody who laughs hysterically when they get the offering plate passed to them? Boy, that'd be different, wouldn't it? Somebody who just can't wait to give, they're so excited, so, so eager to get in and, and give. God loves a cheerful giver. I thought, wow, that's quite a picture. I don't know how you could top that when you talk about giving, than to use a superlative like that. Now, the second time we can use it, putting it down as an adverb, for example... Um, In another part of the Christmas story, in Matthew chapter number two, in verse number ten, we're talking about the wise men, the three kings, some people call them, and they had just gone in to see Herod, and uh, while they're there in in the interview with Herod, they asked him, where is he who's born king of the Jews, we've seen a star in the east, we've come to worship him, and and it put Herod and everybody else in great concern, and in the palace, because they weren't expecting competition. Uh, they were looking for a king too, uh, just to eliminate him, of course. So Herod and them, they had this dialogue, and of course Herod says, well, why don't you go on and look, because the scribes there had looked it up, and said he's to be born in Bethlehem. So the, the magi, the kings, they came back out of there, they looked up, and there's the star, right? The reaction was to rejoice, with exceedingly great joy. Now, the reality is you can't top what they just said in the action of what they did. Uh, The word is to be jumping up and down with joy. So excitedly, jumping up and down with joy. Our planograph just doesn't picture that. We don't have kings when we put them on the page that that look like this. But that was a picture of of their action magnified to its top degree. They were that excited. Now, let's look at what Mary says. Mary says, my soul, verse 46, exalts the Lord. My soul exalts the Lord. There's a verb sitting all by itself, exalts. That's the word I'm going to look at today with you. And it's going to be the top reaction that we could possibly set in that blank. That's a verb. I call it my superlative verb. This whole section from 46 to 55 is very much like a psalm. Matter of fact, you probably thought some parts of it sound a little unusual. Uh, yes, that is true, but it is very song-like. Matter of fact, there's a lot of songs written on this passage that are out there. It, it follows what we call Hebrew poetry, in that uh, the first line and the second line tend to parallel, and so you'll see some of that as you work your way through the passage. But all the way through, it's a masterful statement about God highly theological matter of fact, so theological that there are actually commentators out there that said, well I don't know if Mary could have said such a thing They're, they think it, it couldn't have been from her or she copied it from something else or or um, there are some that they even question whether or not God had inspired this section and I don't understand any of those thoughts at all because scripture says Mary said these things and so we see them as she has declared them. She says, uh, my soul exalts the Lord. My soul exalts the Lord. Now let's, let's break this up a little bit and understand what the magnificence of this word is all about. Um, we use the word magnificat when we talk about this word. It's actually from the Latin. If you saw the Latin verb, you'd say, wow, that spells exactly the same way that we've always seen it. That, that means to prize something highly, to uh, esteem it greatly. The, the Greek word is megaluno. I love that. megaluno. For those of us who have large families, we know what mega means. When you shop, you always look for the mega. The mega rolls of toilet paper and the mega rolls of paper towels and, and the Kleenex boxes you want this big. You like big, because you need big. That's mega. That's an easy word for us. It's the word for abundance. It means great, large, wide. It has a lot of neat meanings. But that's mega. It's actually a Greek word. When you use it, you know Greek. At least that much. Megas is the word. Now, the second word, luno, is interesting, because it's not in the New Testament at all. I went searching for it, and nobody really had an answer for What's luno mean except that it has to do with making something large or making something long? And so you're actually doubling the concept when you use it. To greatly make something large. Kind of an interesting compound of words there. To to greatly or largely make something long or large. Now, what I found interesting... Enlarged is probably the good word for it. Enlarged. It occurs about nine times in the New Testament, and I'm not going to go to all of those there, but I will show you a couple that really illustrate it well. One is in Matthew chapter number 23. Jesus in this passage of Matthew chapter 23 is confronting the Pharisees for their practices, which, by the way, they're, they like to exaggerate things, Everything about them was an exaggeration. Um, In their giving, before they'd even put a gift in the offering plate, they'd blow a trumpet. You'd say, wow, what a strange practice that is. Um, But they like to get attention of men, and he points that out. But this is what he said about them. In Matthew 23, verse 1, Jesus spoke to the crowd and his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore all that they tell you do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move with so much as a finger. But they will do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor. Now this is interesting, verse number 5 here. They brought in their phylacritic. There was a a concept given in the Old Testament that they were to take God's word and to write it out. And most of the time, the scripture really meant to put it on your heart. Write these things on your heart, which, of course, they couldn't do. They wanted a visible thing of that, so they went with this phylactery idea of a box. They put scripture in this box, and they detach it to their forehead. Right? That was their way of keeping God's word close to their mind, I guess. But could you imagine making it bigger and bigger and bigger to impress people? Eventually, it's the size of a shoebox. I can almost picture it, can't you? And they've got this great big old box, and they say, No, the other guy's using a crate. I've got to beat that. And they get bigger. And bigger. It's kind of comical, isn't it? But the second thing they did was lengthening the tassels on their robes. They were told to put these tassels on their robes in the Old Testament to remind them to be in prayer before the Lord. So it became a prayer tassel concept. And so they were to wear them on the robe, and it never specified their length. But of course, once Pharisees get a hold of it, there's competition now. My tassel has to be longer than your tassel. And I could only imagine what these things looked at after several years of this challenge. They had this great big rope hanging behind them as they walked down the street. I can't picture it any other way but exaggerated. Because that's the word that is used here, the same word we're looking at. Not only did they make it long, they greatly made it long. That was their job, just to extend and to broaden and to to make these things larger and longer as can be. Quite exaggerated. But that's what Jesus said of them
1: question I always
0: think when I, when I hear these words, I say, well, how long did they actually get? That would be interesting to have seen. Well, there's another time, the, the same word is used, actually again in Second Corinthians, where Paul is talking about his ministry to, to the Corinthians. And more than anything, he wanted these Corinthians to be maturing so that he didn't have to spend all his time working with them. He had other places he wanted to go. And so his encouragement to them was, was basically that they get right with the Lord and they start to grow in their faith and mature in their faith because he's got more territory he wants to go to. He wanted to stretch his ministry. He wanted to make it longer. He's using the same word. That was his desire, was not just to, to get caught up in one location, but to stretch as far, as far as he could possibly go. And he used that word. He, he didn't want to just stay in that region, you could tell now. He said, just give me a map, I'll go all the way across the world. That's his concept. That's how he expressed it to them. So, when Mary is using this section here to describe God and his character, I can't think of a better verb to throw in the passage, when you want to talk about him. Matter of fact, somebody had just done that. Her name was Elizabeth. Go back to Luke chapter number 1. Luke chapter number 1. And just back up just a little bit. Starts in verse number 39. Now at this time Mary rose and went in a hurry to the hill country, to the city of Judah, and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting. The baby leapt, or leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. She cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the sound of the greeting reached my ear, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what has been spoken to her by the Lord. This, this reaction that Elizabeth had, uh, thinking of, of how great this is. How is it that the Lord showed this to me? It was a stunning thing to her. How has it happened to me, she said in verse 43. You know what's interesting in, in this reaction She's using the same kind of descriptive words in the sense of, how? How great this is! How, how incredible this is! She's surprised by the whole thing. It's mentioned here. It's mentioned in verse number 58 as well. After Elizabeth has this baby, the time had come in verse 57. The time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had displayed his great mercy toward her. And they were rejoicing with her. That too was the, the greatest concept you could put down. How great the Lord has done this action toward me. And everyone in town knew it. It's kind of a neat picture. But right in the middle of that, here's Mary in her worshipful words. She employs that same word. My soul exalts. Exults. exults makes large makes great the Lord we use the word magnifies I think we're still hoping for the absolute best English word to put in here exalt is great magnifies is great it it doesn't uh, always fulfill the concept for this word exalt is in a present tense almost a continuous concept my soul is exalting and it doesn't, it doesn't fade, it doesn't stop. My, my soul is magnifying and it's a consistent magnification in the action. It's kind of hard to even express it fully in, in English words. But this is what she says. This is, this is how great I want to express for my soul concerning my Lord. I want to make Him great, is the words that comes from there. Now, that's an interesting thing because he is great, isn't he? How many of us really think that we can make him greater than he is? He is great. Right? We know that. We we say he's mighty. Can we make him more mighty? No. We, we, he's holy. Can we make him more holy? No. It's kind of interesting. Uh... We cannot make him great, but we can worship him greater. To esteem him higher, to extol, to laud, to celebrate, to give glory, to give praise, we can do better, can't we? But we're up against um, some stiff competition. For those who like to compete, because that's the nature of a superlative, uh, the angels have been designed by God to give him praise. Is that true? Yes, it is. Matter of fact, in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, we have a good description of the seraphim. The seraphim, it says, uh, chapter 6, verse 1 of Isaiah, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to the other, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. You can almost hear the second one echo it. But that's what they did. They hovered around the Lord and declared His holiness over and over and over and over and over again. That's been going on since God created those angels. It's interesting, isn't it? Try to picture that in your mind. We think of heaven as a quiet little place. It's not. Not if those angels are going at that all the time. Matter of fact, It's an interesting scene in the book of Revelation, during one of the judgments, just before it starts, the heavens go silent. I bet that's a stunning silence. For all they ever hear up there is the angel shouting, holy, holy, holy. And you say, okay, that's pretty impressive. Well, there's living creatures, too. We we have a hard time defining these guys, but they are angelic beings. And in Revelation 4, it describes their actions. It says the, in verse 8 that the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. Try drawing that picture. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. So now you've got Seraphim doing this, and then you've got these four living creatures doing it, and they never stop. Day and night, off they go. Same thing, over and over and over and over. And I'm not sure that we can do much to exceed them in praising God. That would be a challenge, wouldn't it? So let's say, okay, if they've got the praise thing pretty much settled here, why don't we try glorifying God? Let's see if we could do better with glorifying God. According to Psalm 19, you might know this. What glorifies God? Think real quick. The heavens declare the glory of God and the earth... What? You don't know. The expanse, the earth is declaring the works of His hands. Here it goes, day by day, it pours forth speech. Night by night, it reveals knowledge. There is no speech, there are no words, their voice is not heard, their line is gone out through all the earth, their utterance to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming up out of its chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run its course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens, and its circuit is to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. Quite a neat little psalm as it begins here. The picture of, of the heavens declaring the glory of God and, and how the earth and the sun even is part of the process when it gets up and it, and it moves forward. It's declaring God's glory. When doesn't it? Since God created this earth, it's been designed to be giving Him glory in that fashion over and over and over again. And I thought, well, maybe if you get up early enough, you can beat the sun. But you can't. All nature is designed to give him this kind of praise and glory constantly. Now, how are we starting to look in light of these two? Angels and nature, in comparison to giving him praise and glory. We kind of fall short, don't we? By a long way. By a long ways. But here's what I like about this passage. Mary doesn't say, well, this is the angel's job, or this is the uh, creation's job. She just puts her, her voice into it, doesn't she? She doesn't let them, earth, or even heaven, prevent her from magnifying her Lord. She calls upon her soul to do it. This is a neat picture. The soul is the essence of who you are. The soul, some scholars says, is the, the animated part of a man. The animated part. See, there, there's, there's like action of life to the body is what they use it. They get from Genesis chapter 2 where God formed man out of the dust of the ground. And then he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. That's where they get the concept that your soul is is who you really are. The essence of all that you do is wrapped up in the concept of a soul. And if her worship is coming from her soul, she calls upon her soul, My soul, exalt the Lord! Her worship is not left to some sort of a mechanical action. it's, It's not just something that the body just does, but she requires the very living essence of herself to give him this praise. She calls for more, which leads to a simple point of application to start with. How easy is it for us to worship in a mechanical way? Just to sing a hymn without even thinking about the words. Because everyone else is doing it. We just follow along with... Kind of like that bouncy ball on top of the words on the page. We, we just follow the ball mechanically. We go through the process. We go through the, the routine. We can mouth the words without even thinking about what they say. How easy is it to give like that? An offering play comes, you just automatically do. A response. How often do we serve in a very ritual type of way? A, a, a standard procedure... This is the way we've always done it. We just serve. Is it possible to become very mechanical in worship? In Nehemiah's day, there's a, a great story. that I love this part of the story. In Nehemiah's day, they were rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And everyone was responsible for building the section of the wall just outside their house. All right? doesn't sound like a huge job, but it took some time and effort. That they were all to go out and they were to work on their house. And I would say that 90%, maybe even a greater number than that, did their duty. They went out and they built their part of the wall. That was their job to do. But there was one man in the list that Nehemiah mentions, and you can look, up, look him up a little bit later. His name was Baruch. Baruch is said to have zealously repaired his section. He's the only one that had that word zealous in front of his actions. I wondered what it looked like. This man, zealously... Wouldn't you have liked to have worked right next to him? Might have wore you out in the first half hour just to see it. This man, zealously, did something that everyone else did by duty. Do you think he was noticeable? So much so that Nehemiah put it in the notes. This man zealously built his portion of the wall. Now, that looks different than the rest of the crowd. This is a, a point I make as we start here. When we talk about worship, my soul exalts the Lord. To so what degree do we exalt Him? What, what is the animation in that word? Are we routine... Are we wooden? We just follow the procedure? Let me ask this, because I'm on the point. To what degree do you love the Lord? You know what Scripture calls us to do? You know. We are to love the Lord with all of our heart, all of our soul all of our mind. Alright, how are we doing? Pretty good? Sort of? We say we love the Lord. How do those words come out of our mouth when we say them? We love the Lord. Is that mechanical to us? Is that just routine? We joke about this. It's even now in the movies where you finish a conversation with your spouse on the phone and you say, love you, and hang up, and people accidentally find themselves saying that to the wrong people? Because it's mechanical. We tend to do things like this. It's just routine. Love him with all your soul. How does Mary worship him? She magnifies him with her soul her essence of being, to do the greatest of praising. Now, this is not magnifying Mary. This is magnifying her Lord. This is her action. One commentator put it this way. I thought it was really good. In the song, the singer has been lost. You may say, well, that's Mary. She's in the Bible. I mean, we have planograph of her. She's different than us, right? She's she's a different kind of a person. That's the way we generally think. Consider, though, for a minute what Mary has been through. Because we have the record. Her whole life has just been turned upside down by God. Back here in Luke chapter 1, verse number 26. On the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. And she was very perplexed. Wouldn't you have been? She was perplexed at that statement. And she kept pondering, what kind of salutation was this? And the angel said, Do not be afraid, Mary. Why do you think he said that? It's real simple. She was afraid. Alright? For you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the son of the Most High God, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. How do you fathom that phrase? How do you put these thoughts together that's just coming out of the mouth of this angel? And Mary says to the angel, How can this be? Since I am a virgin. And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for this reason the Holy Child will be called the Son of God. Behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived in her a son in her old age, and she who is called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. What an astounding response. She's perplexed. She's pondered. She's afraid. She questions. She says, It sounds impossible to me. According to the nature of things, it's reality. It can't be. But she's convinced. She's submissive. Never do we find another passage where she questioned what God had told her. Never do we see that. She followed through with what he said. The very next words out of her, her mouth, verse 46. My soul magnifies the Lord. Generally, when our world's turned upside down, is that the first thought in our heart? The first words from our mouth? See, the perspective here is not. It was about Mary. Mary's plans, Mary's dreams, Mary's image, Mary's marriage. It was about God getting the praise. That's why she turned it to. God... Giving the praise, we don't see reluctance here. We don't see uh, a grudging response. We don't see this wrung out of her. But if Mark was writing this passage, the Gospel of Mark would say, "And immediately, Mary said the first words of these songs She's expressive. She wasn't reserved. She wasn't mechanical. She wasn't wooden. She reaches down to her very soul and she expresses the greatest thing that she could muster. She speaks of her Lord. She magnifies her Lord. So let's turn it back on ourselves for a minute. Take another look again at the practice of the way we worship, I worship, you worship. I'm not looking for people to start jumping over pews. Alright? That's not at all what I'm trying to say. But you do have a soul, don't you? Is it a thankful soul? Is it one that the Lord has redeemed and you're just thrilled that he did? Or has it become uh, a mechanical thing for us to say thank you? A mechanical thing. A wooden thing for us to worship. Our worship ought to show what our soul is thinking. So I'm going to leave you with a homework assignment here. It's real simple. It's just fill in the blank. My soul, the Lord. There's your spot to fill my soul, the Lord, Mary chose magnifies what will you choose, heavenly Father, far too often we read your word and we worship you in our service far too often in that mechanical way, Well we carry our thoughts with us of many things that we must be doing or people we must see or things that we have to say or things we have to finish or things we have to start. We've got our list. So many times we see the activities of our world around us. We see the heavy things that happen. We see the news. We see our own stories played out for a week before, things that have affected us things that have stretched us, things that have challenged us, things that are heavy on our heart. Sometimes it's our children, sometimes it's our parents, sometimes it's our neighbors, sometimes it's our coworkers. Sometimes our jobs weigh heavy on us. Sometimes we we come to you with a great deal of stress and worry that we've bound up inside of us. I think Mary had many things that she could have had her focus on. But I like the way she started this section because it's where we should start too. When we come before you, Lord, may our hearts and our very souls want to magnify you. What a great place for us to start. And I pray, Lord, that as we contemplate the manner in which we worship you, that you help us to see who you are what you have done. And may our souls have the appropriate response in magnifying your name. Work with us, Lord. Thank you for your grace, your mercy, your love, your forgiveness, the abundance of your care, and all that you've done to show us over and over again how much you love us. May we learn to love you with all our hearts, and with all our souls, and with all our minds, we pray this today in Jesus' name. Amen.